a prayer request from a CIC reader again of the same issue. Uh, her church has decided uh, rather than preaching the gospel, they're going to do some man-made program, and she's asked the pastor about about it, and he told her she just had a bad attitude. So she has a meeting. This this is just repeated over and over again, but. These people are asking for prayer, and I, my heart goes out to them because they're so concerned for their churches. And uh, so there was a lady that asked for prayer, so I'm going to lift that up and um, continue to pray for the saints scattered around the world. And let's pray for our service this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can again gather with our brothers and sisters who are adopted into your family and open the scriptures together and encourage one another and pray for one another and um, exhort one another and encourage one another and all the things that we need uh, that you made available to us through the means of grace. We thank you for that. We do pray for our dear uh, brothers and sisters who are scattered uh, around the world, some of whom will have no fellowship. We pray that they also would uh, share with us in the, the truth of the Word of God that changes lives. We pray for the, the, the lady who asked for prayer because she has a meeting Tuesday with her church board concerning the issue of turning away from the gospel. We pray that you give her words and protect her, Lord, as she goes to that meeting. And Father, we pray now that as we open up Second Corinthians that we could understand clearly what your Word means and then make valid applications. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 6. Verse 6 through 8 is basically one thought with, um, about being in good courage, and then there's a parenthetical aspect here. So let me read it and then I'll point out the parenthetical, and then we'll go back and go into the phrases with more uh, in more detail. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Now, the good courage is the main point, and knowing while we're at home with the body, absent from the Lord, we walk by faith but not by sight, is sort of a parenthetical um, comment to uh, clarify why Paul is saying what he's saying. But the main point is the good courage, and the good courage is that we are with the Lord no matter what. Okay, So if we are here in the body, his topic is um, the, the temporal and the eternal that he's been talking about all the way back into chapter 4, so we're, we're with the Lord, but we're, now we're walking by faith and not by sight. We can't see the Lord. But if we depart from this body before the parousia, before we're caught up and changed in the twinkling of an eye, we still go to be with the Lord. And that's Paul's point in these passages we've been studying. That, so the, the, the Christian who dies before the rapture is still ushered into the presence of the Lord. And the exact nature of this state, this intermediary state that we've been talking about between death and resurrection, 
We don't know a lot about, but we do know that the person is conscious, is, is with the Lord, and there's no soul sleep. So, verse 6 says, Therefore, being of good courage... Now, the, the, that's a reference back to the fact that we have the Holy Spirit. So, right now, we have the Holy Spirit as the pledge or down payment for all of the promises that we have, including the future resurrection of the body. And, and so we have this down payment, and so we are of good courage, and we know that, that, that if we die, we go to be with the Lord. We are in communion. We, are, we do have co- real communion with the Lord now, but, but only through the Holy Spirit. And in a sense, we're pilgrims in a, uh, a strange land that's not totally our home. And we are uh, aliens, it says in, in some of these passages. We'll look, one, look up some passages about this. And also, because we're Christian, we are uh, in a world that's, uh, 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 how would you say it, hostile. In other words, everything the world around us does and believes for, is is a grievous thing and it makes it very difficult for, for Christians. And things that other people um, see as just the way things need to be, to us it's, it grieves us. Just one of our members this morning was just telling me something that she had to deal with at work that's so evil and so grievous that uh, she's wondering whether she can even keep her job. And, and this is just the, sort of the things that happen when we live in this world. So we... Uh, have a reason to want to be with the Lord. We're, we're aliens and, and strangers in this world, but we do have one another, and we do have the comfort and encouragement of the Scriptures. So I w- let's look at some cross-references. Um, we'll start with Pauline. Pauline, Romans 8, 23, and um, uh, Dale, um, 2 Corinthians 1, 22, and Michelle, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, and then Robert... Oh, excuse me. I, I'm in the wrong set here. Erase all of that. Uh, yeah, I was just making sure you were on your toes. We did those last week. So, Pauline, now we're back to... I wanted you to do Psalm 27, 3 and 4. Dale, Psalm 39, 12. Michelle, Psalm 119, 19. And Robert, Philippians 3, 20 and 21. And Keith, Hebrews 11, 13. Hebrews 11, 13. Okay, Psalm 27, 3 and 4. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Okay, there was this desire there to be with the Lord. Psalm 39, 12. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness, that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. 
O Lord my God, I will give my thanks to you forever. Yeah, so there's a, you know, the, the eternal hope is there in the Old Covenant, but it's not ex- explained as clearly as what we have in the New Testament. But you can see in passages like that, he says, I'll be praising you forever. So that meant that somehow they had to believe that there was life after death and that this life would somehow be something in the presence of the Lord if you could be praising him forever. There's Keith. That was Jesus' point when he replied, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. That's a good point. When, when Jesus was debating with the Sadducees, who did not believe in the resurrection, and they did not believe in any books of the Bible except for Torah. They didn't believe in uh, the prophets or the Psalms, uh, only Torah. So, interestingly, when Jesus was debating them, uh, he proved the, the life after death from the Torah. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, he's the God of the living. So there was this uh, concept under the Old Covenant. It's just not as clearly defined as it is in the New. Okay, then the passage that I gave you, Michelle. Psalm 119, 19. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. I'm a stranger on the earth. Is that what it says? Yeah. So there was this idea that they didn't fit in either, the old covenant saints. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Okay, so the, the passage says we're strangers or pilgrims. What was it called? Or, no, it says our citizenship is in heaven, right? Is that what it says? Yeah. So we're citizens of heaven even though we're dwelling here. So that makes us aliens in this world. And then it talks about this, uh, that the resurrection body that we'll receive is going to be like Jesus's. He's called the first fruits of those who, who, who have raised the first fruits. And so when Jesus was raised from the dead, he had a real resurrection body, howbeit it was of, of different, uh, somewhat different nature than the mortal body. And Paul discusses that in, in 1 Corinthians 15. He calls it a spiritual body, but he doesn't mean by that incorporeal um, or not, not tangible but he means uh, one that's glorified and suited for living forever, unlike these mortal ones that are wearing out. Okay? That's the teaching in the New Testament. And then we have... um, Did I give you one, Keith? Okay. Hebrews 11.13. All these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So that was the Old Testament saints. Wow. I, I think that the concept of what we believe here is, very, is, is a parallel. They, Abraham didn't try to win or buy land so he could have his kingdom here. He was waiting for a kingdom that was going to be eternal, even though he was promised the promised land. And we're waiting for a kingdom that's going to be eternal. So getting more money or more stature or more whatever it is here is very, very limited. We're not trying, you know, even ultimately getting healed in my physical body here is a transitory thing. I'd rather 
the ultimate healing in a, in a body that doesn't get sick. Yeah, there's a very important aspect to um, Christian thinking, and and it isn't that we are irresponsible, or we shouldn't be anyhow. We take care of our business, we're supposed to. We should be good stewards of whatever the Lord gave us. We should take care of ourselves and, and try to stay healthy. We should um, be good workers in whatever jobs we have. But we do have an eternal perspective that this isn't all there is. Our hope is not only in this world. In fact, it's not in this world. And Paul said if it was, we'd be of all people most miserable. And that's a good um, uh, thing to keep in mind is that we have an eternal perspective. I had one more passage. Uh, Joanne, could you do Hebrews 13:14? Here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. I couldn't hear that. Okay. For we are here. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Okay. Here we don't have a lasting city. Okay. We're seeking the city to come. Is that what it said? Okay. So there's a, a future hope there. Now let's go to verse uh, seven. For we walk by faith and not by sight. The, the, in the Greek, there's a genitive construction, not of sight. Um, and the, the real absence, or the real issue here isn't invisibility, although that's certainly part of it. We don't see this heavenly home. We don't see Christ. We don't see um, the, you know, the blood that was shed once for all and these things that Hebrews talks about. But in this case, the issue is absence. The issue is absence. Because it says, we're home at the body, we're absent from the Lord. Now, we're indwelt. Look at, I had an interesting question from somebody um, over the internet, and I was teaching Romans in Arkansas this last week. I taught, I lectured three and a half hours a day, three days in a row, and I lectured verse by verse through Romans 1 through 8. And I, we, one of the things I was teaching the, the students at the Bible school was to look for these parallel constructions and, because oftentimes you have synonymous parallelisms that give you insight into concepts. All right? Now, I got an email just after I got back from Arkansas that said, well, how can you... The Bible says Christ dwells in us. So how can you say Christ is in heaven and we can't see him? If, and then how can he dwell in us? How does that work? Okay, well, look at, with me to Romans 8... And verse 9, Romans 8, verse 9, and we're going to look at some synonymous parallelisms that will help us answer the question, what does it mean in the Bible when it says Christ dwells in us? The, the point is, if Christ really had a body when he was raised, and he bodily ascended in heaven, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, and that he's going to come bodily back to earth, how can he dwell in the Christian? All right, that's the question. Now look at this passage. Verse 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now is the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ something different? 
Or is it synonymous? It's a synonymous construction. And what, what this whole verse is going back to when talking about being absent and present, if you go back to John 20, Jesus talking to uh, Thomas because he had a real tangible body. He showed this man Thomas, his disciple, his tangible body and said, put your finger here so you could actually feel his hand. Or put your hand in my side so you could feel his side. And Tom, Thomas is my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, because you have seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who do not see me. So we're part of those who have not seen him because he's yeah. in heaven. I can't put my finger in his hand or my hand in his side because he's not here anymore. Therefore, I don't walk by sight that way where Thomas actually did because there was a corporal body in front of him. Yeah, that's a very good cross-reference. Did you, did you all hear that? You know, the acoustics in here, I think we've got to get something on the walls. It's so echoey. <clears throat> he, he was pointing out the passage in John where, where uh, Thomas had to... He, he, he was doubting, and so Jesus said, Here, feel the wounds of Calvary. Feel that he had a real body. And he, and he said, My Lord, oh my God. And then Jesus said to him, You've seen and believed, but blessed are those who, are, who have not seen but yet believe. But Thomas had faith. It was a real saving faith, but it was faith based on what he had seen. Yeah. Right. Thomas' faith was based on what he had seen, but we believe in him whom we have not seen. Now back to Romans, Romans 8 9. So the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ are used in a synonymously parallel construction showing us they're the same thing. Now let's go on. And if Christ is in you, now is he going to a different thought? No. This is continual, continued discussion of the same point. So you're not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, does not belong to him, but if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of, uh, is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So now we have the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, Christ in you, the spirit of him who raised him from the dead. They're all the same. It's only talking about one topic here, not four. Okay? So, therefore, when the Bible says Christ is in you, that is simply another way of saying you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. Now, the other thing that we were pointing out here in this passage, um, it says here, if the Spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who indwells you. Now, that's going to ultimately mean the resurrection. So then, brethren, we are not, not under obligation, not to the flesh, but to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. So this is all a discussion of the Holy Spirit. And I would point out that what Paul is saying here is true for all Christians. I got an email from somebody challenging my article on pietism. <coughs> and they were challenging me because of the section where I pointed out that the carnal Christian is an oxymoron and that those who are in the flesh, according to the Bible, are lost. And, and, he, and so the guy, I, I think I've gotten emails from him over the years, the same guy, he's one of these um, followers of the no lordship position that, that, you know, that doesn't like John MacArthur, that... that what, what, Ryrie and those guys, okay, that if you give mental assent 
to the fats. That's, that's what repentance is, and that's being saved. And the people who have mental assent are saved even if they never have any Christian fruit in their life ever. And, and so I've debated the same guy before. So, of course, he didn't like my teaching uh, that, that the carnal Christian was just actually a lost person. All right? And so I, what I did was I just, caught, I just took from my computer Bible this section in Romans and, and sent it to him. I said, Paul, fleshly means carnal. And it says here that if you're, if you're living a fleshly life, you must die. Okay? And, and it says here that um, um, those who are walking according to the Spirit are the Christians. And it says here in verse 7, the mind that's set on the flesh, in other words, the carnal mind, is hostile to God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh or are fleshly cannot please God. Now, how can that be descriptive of a Christian? Having a mind hostile to God and unable to please God is not the description of any Christian. It's a description of what we were when we were lost. Okay? So I sent that to him. I don't know if he'll want to continue the debate or not. But um, so, that, so what that all says then is that the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of him who raised from the dead, the Holy Spirit are all the same. It's the Holy Spirit who indwells a Christian. It's all synonymous. Now, so we walk by faith, not by sight. Why? Well, because we can't see the, the objects of our faith. And this is very much the argument in the, of the book of Hebrews. If you really want to take one of the key points from the entire book of Hebrews that we studied through, and by the way, if you joined us um, lately and weren't in the, part of this congregation when we were in the other building, uh, the last book that we studied through before Second Corinthians was Hebrews. And that entire study is on our website. If you, if you want to say, take a long time, but it's a good way to be discipled. What? It'll take a really long time, yeah. But it, it, uh, it, it's a very helpful study, and I thought it was very important for us. And one of the things that we noticed about Hebrews, because it talks about the danger of apostasy. And when I was in Arkansas, there was a fellow who, whose job was going to be to teach Hebrews, and he was asking me about apostasy and how, what it means. And I was pointing out that if you look at Hebrews, the big issue, and it's very similar to the one at Sinai, but the big issue in Hebrews was the fact that the people lived at a time when the temple sacrifices were still going on. All right? And they were Jewish believers who were being tempted to go back to Judaism and to, and to walk away from Christ. And so there's five uh, warnings against apostasy in Hebrews. But part of the attraction of the temple sacrifices was their tangibility. They wanted something more real or more tangible than just believing. Okay? And so when, when, when Hebrews gives these descriptions, it, it talks about all these things that are important but unseen. And there's many descriptions of them. There's a description of the heavenly sanctuary, the mercy seat, but not here, but the, the, up in heaven. And then when it comes down to the kind of the most important part in, cha in chapter 12, you see this issue of walking by faith and not by sight, just like what we're saying here. Now, let, let, let's turn to Hebrews 12:18 and talk about this idea of walking by faith. 
not by sight. Faith, according to Hebrews, is the evidence of things not seen. Blessed is he who believes but is not seen. <laughs> but it's not because it's a, someone had a mystical experience. Or they, somebody at one point in time did see tangibly and communicated to us tangibly, and therefore we believe what they saw. That's true. So it's not that it's some mystical, it's not like the Book of Mormon that we believe because we didn't see what Joseph Smith didn't see. Nobody ever saw. <laughs> but, but we have a, a warm you know, feeling in our bosom, a burning in our bosom because we read the book. We believe because Abraham saw, because the apostles saw, Thomas saw and touched, Therefore, we believe because they told us... Because of the testimony in the scripture. Well, actually, I've argued that mysticism is actually, ironically, a desire for more tangible experience. We may say, how can you have tangible mysticism? But as a matter of fact, if you read some of the mystics like Greg Boyd, uh, his experience where he claims he literally saw Jesus in his mind coming back bringing him back to his childhood, so they're doing time travel, bringing him back to talk to his dead grandmother, so they're doing necromancy, and then they're changing history because his dead grandmother, who had been abusive to him, when, when she appears with Jesus in his uh, cataphatic state that he, that he claims to be in, this, this dead grandmother now has repented after the death and is, 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 and is treating him correctly. And so you have uh, an amazing, uh, uh, imagine the credulity that, that, that you would believe this sort of thing for the, for the sake of being healed. Now, according to the description, this is in the book, Seeing is Believing, which the title shows you he doesn't know the Bible. Um, seeing is Believing. The, the point is, this seems very tangible, doesn't it? Now, what would be un, un, less tangible would be to simply believe that the reason I'm okay isn't because my, I recreated my past and, and talked to my dead grandmother and have her different than she was, but the reason I'm okay is because the blood of Jesus has washed away my sins. Okay? And what's wrong with us isn't that somebody else sinned against us. That can't hurt us. It might make us feel bad. It might make us sad. But somebody sinning against us cannot do much to us if we're right with God. Because they can't take anything away that God's given us. And so we need to be satisfied that the blood of Jesus has washed away our sins. And and, uh, Jesus said, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your name's in the Lamb's Book of Life. And, yeah, Keith, you had a little interaction with someone about this same issue. But, But the concept is, instead of seeking something mystical, we can believe what we don't see now, but Jesus died once for all, and men saw that and communicated to men orally and wrote it down so we can believe their words. What's happening, like in that book, is the spirits are constructing an alternate reality, a different reality, where he wasn't abused and his grandmother yeah. came by. So that, that, they're creating a fiction, which we also call a lie, and by believing the lie, I feel healed. Right. I may not feel healed by believing that Jesus died for my sins, but I am healed whether I feel it or not. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Um, I've seen people embrace unbelievable air trying to get a better feeling. 
and the Bible's not offering us a better feeling. It's offering us forgiveness of sins. Now, it is offering us things that you might call feelings. It's called the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and things like that. But uh, if, if we have memories that we don't really care for, the good news is, is it's all washed away by the blood, and we can forgive other people, and our destiny is not in the hands of any other person. It's only in the hands of Jesus. And it's not where we've been anyhow, it's where we're going. <laughs> now let me read this thing about... Uh, see, in the other, the, the other lives, that if we had a more tangible experience, whether it's a mystical-type tangibility or a real one, like people claim to have open visions, like that Rick Joyner, and he, and he went into heaven and he talked to the dead saints. It's amazing how people don't have any qualms about practicing necromancy anymore. Um, but the, the fact is that... We have something better whether we ever see it uh, in this life or not, which we normally will not. Okay, here's what it says here. Now, they had something really tangible, and the lie is that if we just had something tangible, then we'd believe. But, but that, that's not true because in Luke 16, remember, there's the dead, uh, the Lazarus and the rich man. They both died, and one goes to Abraham's bosom, and the other goes into torment. And there's a chasm between the two, and they can't cross over. And so the rich man says, let me go back, let me go back. If, if somebody comes back from the dead, i got brothers, and I'm going to tell them, hell is real, don't go there. You need to repent. And Jesus says, no, they have Moses and the prophets, and if they won't believe that, neither will they believe if a man comes back from the dead. And it was prophetic because Jesus came back from the dead, and, t- and, and so did Lazarus, <laughs> a different Lazarus, I think, and John, and they didn't, they didn't believe. In fact, when, when God did raise the dead, Lazarus, Jesus did, called him out of the grave, they wanted to kill Lazarus. <laughs> they put him back in the grave again because it was making people believe in Jesus. Imagine the hardness of heart. God raised the dead and we want to kill the guy he just raised from the dead. So that just puts the lie to the whole idea that if I just saw something tangible, then I'd have faith. Now here is a passage uh, that says that same thing. Hebrews 12 and starting with verse 18. Now this is bringing back something from their past, the mountain that they couldn't touch, uh, and saying that they would come in a Sinai. Remember, if anybody touched it, they died. They had to rope it off and the glory was too great and they were too sinful and only Moses could go up. So uh, the author of Hebrews is reminding them of that tangible mountain and saying that they've come to something more profound. Here's what it says in verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and a whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. It's talking back in uh, uh, Exodus 19 and, and on, you know, to like through chapter 34. For they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. So they said, don't talk. We don't want to hear from God. Moses, you've got to talk to God. This is, this is going to kill us. In verse 21, and so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. Verse 22, but, but now what, here's a lesser to greater argument. All of that from their history that they knew from Torah is a lesser thing than what we've come to. It's lesser. Here's what, here's what we've come to. Um, but you, Christians, have come to Mount Zion, to the city of, of the living God, 
to the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Now, how is it that this Jesus who is unseen and in heaven is speaking? So there's scripture. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. See, Hebrews 1 explains how, how Jesus is speaking. It says right here that... God, after he spoke long ago in the fathers and in the prophets and in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world. And then in chapter 2, it talks about the apostles. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was first spoken through the Lord and confirmed to us by those who heard? So the eyewitnesses confirmed. That's our scriptures. So, in a, in a sense that God's words are authoritative and binding upon all people, Jesus is speaking from heaven through the words of, of the preached gospel and through the, re, the reading of the scripture. He is speaking. And what he is saying is repent and believe the gospel. He's saying uh, that we must turn to him. And, and so, verse 25, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking for... Here's another lesser to greater argument... For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. It's going to be greater. And, And the expression yet once more denotes the removal of those things that can be shaken as of created things, in order those things which cannot be shaken May remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, there's an argument that um, claims that all the great and glorious things that we, that we saw in the history in Torah was lesser than what we've come to today, even though we cannot see it. The blood of Jesus is unseen, but it was poured out on the mercy seat in heaven once for all. They could go down to the temple and they could literally see the animals being sacrificed. They could literally see the high priest in all of his splendor doing his service on the Day of Atonement. They could literally see the temple and they thought that was better than this unseen Jesus. And it's the same issue that led to the golden calf. When Moses went up on the mountain and didn't come back, they said, we don't know what happened to Moses. As soon as they couldn't see him, they made a calf. Ha, this is more tangible. This is our God. What they meant was, (coughs) what they meant was, this, this represents God. We can make a tangible thing that we say represents God. Yes? And wasn't at the time then Jesus had died, his blood was sufficient, the curtain in the temple had been torn down, so the temple system no longer was valid, was, uh, was valid or yeah. contributed anything because the blood of the Son now has been offered and He had presented it. That's the Hebrews' argument. He presented it in the holy place. So to believe in and to follow a temple system after that point 
was an utter rejection, saying, No, the blood of this man is not sufficient for my sins. I must sacrifice an animal. So it was a repudiation of what he did. It wasn't yeah. symbolic in any form. It was a repudiation of what Jesus had done. Exactly. And, and it's called apostasy, and they're warned that if they go back to it, they'll never be again renewed to repentance. Hebrews 6. And, they will, and Hebrews 10 says they trample under... I want to bring it to Brian. Hebrews 10 says they trample on underfoot the blood of Jesus in regard to the blood of the covenant by which they were saved as an unclean thing. It's very, very serious. Yes? Uh, I've kind of come across this theme, and you've mentioned it already, what, what leads one to mysticism or a, a carnal act of something more tangible. Uh, I sent you an email this week that yeah. NATO is having. I, I was... Uh, I sent a, a Bob an email this week. I was arguing with the guy that really had great admiration for those that are in the monastery. And uh, I didn't send you the last one he sent back to me. I went back and forth with them, telling them that I thought their, their life was a waste of time in that they're doing all these things, they're taking a vow of silence and all these things, but how many of them are really sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ while they're holed up in this monastery? But the last email he sent back to me, he goes, well, I'm familiar with people like you who believe that the Bible is literally true. Oh. Now, he said that he was a licensed minister. And the licensure, I won't go into, but it was kind of ridiculous. But what it leads to is that those Hebrews didn't believe. Therefore, they looked for something tangible. This guy did not believe Therefore, he was looking for something tangible. Right. It's the same desire. Exactly. And you can go to the icons and the, uh, all the pomp and circumstance. And it's in a sense, the Romanism, Roman Catholicism, is trying to recreate a priesthood in a temple. You know, give people that sort of a tangible experience because they don't actually just believe the gospel. I talked to a fellow uh, along... Did I tell you about this guy? I talked to a pastor for two hours on the phone a couple of weeks ago, and there, I normally wouldn't spend that much time talking to somebody, but he had a very intriguing story that I wanted to hear. He, was, uh, he, he had gotten within two days of renouncing evangelicalism and joining the Eastern Orthodox Church. And he had spent months and months going through um, Eastern Orthodox indoctrination. And he said that they actually have former evangelicals who are in charge of bringing evangelicals into the Eastern Orthodox Church. And, and Rome has that too. They have apostate evangelicals who will become spokespersons for Rome. And Eastern Orthodox has the same thing. And this guy told me that part of what attracted him to it was he was so tired of all the things coming through evangelicalism that kept you know, this movement, and then that turns out to be wrong, and then I went to this, and then there was something wrong with that. Then I went into, he'd been into, he'd been into everything uh, over the years, and had actually sat under teaching directly at Ligonier Ministries under Spruill and those guys, and he'd been through everything, and then he ended up almost into Eastern Orthodox. And they were trying to convince him that the reason they should, he should join Eastern Orthodox is that you have pristine... Uh, undoctored un, um, Christianity that goes all the way back and that, that nothing has ever changed. Okay? And so they were saying no innovations, no innovations. We did, all we have is the creeds and 
But then they have this hierarchy and they have all this stuff. And these icons and this apotheosis, ascent to godhood. Uh, But he said the thing, he almost got into it, but the thing that stopped him was that they have some holiday. And I'm not an expert on Eastern Orthodox. They just, what I learned in seminary when we studied church history. But they have some sort of a holiday that's based on a myth of the ascension of Mary. And the apostles came back and met Mary and they all ascended into heaven. And that's one of their big holidays. And I'm not even familiar with it. So he was saying that, that, that in his studies they came, they came to that and every church does it. And he says, so he said to these apologists, you tell me that there's no innovations. How can you say that's not an innovation? How can you tell me that that's not a myth? And, and, just, and you're practicing that in your churches everywhere. And the one, the one guy that he was talking to is not a pastor, but a, a former evangelical. He says, well, I, he says, I know it's a myth and I know it's an innovation, but fortunately I don't have to do it because I'm not a pastor. So he, he, the Lord used that to open his eyes and then he read my article on pietism. That's why he called me to tell me this story. And he, he said, I'm just going to go back and just teach the Bible and... Uh, so God preserved him. But what's happening is that people are looking for some, some system that has a little more tangibility to it. You know, the, the robes and the incense and the smells and bells and the big cathedrals and the icons. And then also, they, they, when they get all of that, then they also have uh, the situation where you don't have to think anymore if you don't want to. Because the church hierarchy says, just do what we tell you. And you'll be pleasing to God. Just, just come. We've been here for 2,000 years. Nothing's going to change. Just go through the motions, show up, and everything will be fine. And I think people are, you know, in evangelicalism, the concern is, well, look at all the schisms and splits and heresies and false teachings and everything else that's happened. So maybe we should just go join this iconic old thing and just give up. And I'm saying, don't give up. Keep gather together as the people of God. Open the Scriptures. Encourage one another. Admonish one another. You can know the truth. You can believe the truth. You can be saved. You can be sanctified. And you don't have to run off into weird doctrines. It's not necessary. God's given us everything we need. Okay, Brian. Well, I was just going to say that isn't there a sect of Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem right now that are close to bringing back animal sacrifice? Yeah, I, I've read that several times, and some people think that that's a sign of the times that we're getting closer to uh, the tribulation. I think, well, the same concept of wanting to get something tangible externally with the, either Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy is the same thing that drives people to the, the mystical Christianity, which I came out of. We want to go to revival and have somebody put his hand on me and we feel something and you know, fall under the power or see manifestations of spiritual power that are very tangible. You see somebody standing, and now they're whacked down, which is, <laughs> which is non-Orthodox because there's not the same kind of structured hierarchy, but it's just the same kind of tangible temptation that you're drawn to because I don't feel, studying the truth, the same feelings that I feel when I'm yeah. involved Wait, in it. Walk by faith, not by sight. Well, they do have their apostles. We don't have any apostles except for the biblical ones. And so what what are we looking for? Some holy man in in some kind of garb or some apostle who claims to have visions and could go talk to God and come and tell us? 
or some tangible experience or some mystical experience. And the Bible says, verse 7, that we're studying, we walk by faith and not by sight. The issue is, do we believe the truth? The word walk there is present, active, indicative. And, uh, and so it means by means of, with, this, with the construction here. We walk by means of faith. We live by faith. We, we, we believe in him. Let me, let's look up some cross-references. Um, Troy, if you could look up 1 Corinthians... No, you, you don't do that. Denise is the official reader in this family. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. And then Dick, Galatians 2, 20. Robert, Hebrews 10, 38. And Larry, Hebrews 1, 1 and 6. Okay, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. So we see in a mirror dimly because we don't, we're looking only through the eyes of faith and we don't actually see Jesus. And, and vis, visions of Jesus are, are really of no particular value because you can't know, does, who knows what, exactly what Jesus looks like? What's that? The apostles, they're dead. Yeah, the apostles, but they're not here. And so the, one of the, I'm getting ready. I had to go back and re-study all the stuff on the latter rain movement and the apostles and prophets because I'm going down to Barbados to do a seminar. And we, didn't, we did ours in 2002, and I can't remember what we said. Totally. <laughs> um, and, and when I was redoing that uh, research on that, the interesting thing is one of the requirements of being an apostle was you actually saw the risen Lord. Not have a vision of the risen Lord, but actually saw the risen Lord. And Oral Steinkamp was making that point very strong when we had that, that uh, conference in 2002. And Oral made a point that I think I'll, I'm going to use in my seminar that, that's very, very uh, astute, I thought. He says, if you look in the New Testament, you see clearly laid out the qualifications for elders. Okay. They have to be the husband of one wife. They have to have a good re- uh, reputation of those on the outside. And, and they have to fit certain moral qualifications. And they have to be apt to teach. And they have to be able to refute in sound doctrine those who contradict. That's in Titus chapter 1. And they have to guard the flock against the wolves. That's in Acts chapter 20. All right. So we have all these qualifications for elders so that as church history goes on, we'll know how to find and appoint leaders in the church because we have qualifications. But nowhere in the New Testament, other than having seen the resurrected Christ and have been appointed by him, does it tell the qualifications for apostles. And so Oral's point was, in his part of that seminar, was if, if, if the Lord uh, intended there be a, a, a sequence of apostles like the Roman Catholic Church claims, and that there would always be apostles in the church, why are there no qualifications for them? And in the absence of that, here's, what's, here's the real irony. Now, we have this apostles and prophets movement that's claiming to be a new reformation of the church. And there aren't any qualifications for apostles now because there's none given in the Bible because God didn't intend for there to continue to be authoritative apostles. So in the absence of any qualifications, we have apostles that aren't even up to the qualifications of elders. They don't have, they don't have any quality. They can be, anybody can be an apostle. All you've got to do is get two prophets to, uh, 
uh, say that they think you are one. Make a deal in the back room. You call me an apostle, I'll call you a prophet, and then let's... <laughs> and then we can pat each other in the back. And you don't have any qualifications. Yes? Some would say that Timothy is an apostle, and they had a procedure that the Bible tells us how Timothy became one. How would you respond to that? Well, uh, they're making the mistake of assuming that every time you get the term apostello, which means someone sent, that it's, a, that it's the technical term that applies to an authoritative apostle. And, and as Oral was pointing out at his part of that seminar, um, there were people called apostles that were only, do, all they were doing was sent to bring an offering somewhere. And they're called apostello, sent one. And so you have to distinguish between authoritative apostles who were appointed by Christ and people who were sent on a mission and, and it merely is functional terminology. So, that, yeah, that movement claims there were 23 apostles. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Was Christ, so the only authoritative apostles were the ones appointed directly by Christ tangibly in his resurrection body. Anybody else was just sent. And they don't have any more message they can preach than what was already uh, laid, the foundation of Christ and his apostles. So we would affirm that people can be sent like Timothy. And we could, we could lay hands on someone, which was probably what I was talking about in Timothy, that he had been ordained, and, and send them. Let's say we officially send someone to be our representative for the gospel in another city or another, or another country. Here, Barbados. Okay, I'm being sent by the church down to Barbados. So I'm a sent one, but I wouldn't call myself an apostle because it confuses people. So we use the term missionary because there's somebody appointed and sent. But the missionary doesn't have the authority to give new binding revelation on the church. And so the real issue with these apostles is whether they have the authority to bind anybody under their teachings. And I say they do not. So under that logic, Matthias was appointed to serve among the twelve, among the eleven, to be the twelve. But he wasn't an apostle because he wasn't appointed by Christ. Well, there's, that's an interesting point, uh, uh, Patrick. I've heard two different versions of that. He, but that passage is one where you find the qualification of having seen the risen Lord, because he had, so they, they were requiring that. But, yeah, he wasn't appointed by Christ. Now, Gary Gilley's book, on the way down to Arkansas, I read the entirety of Gary Gilley's new book, and I highly recommend it. It's a great book. Gilley's claim was that Matthias really was an apostle, that God intended there to be only 12, but not him, that that was just an idea the church came up with, and that Paul was the one who fills the role of the 12. That's what Gilley says. But Gilley, like, like what I'm saying here, is denying... That, that there's any binding revelation after the closing of the New Testament canon. Okay? So he calls himself a cessationist, and, I, and, if, and if his definition is the correct one, then I'd be a cessationist too, because I don't believe there's any binding revelation either after the Scripture. Yes? Well, Matthias's revelation, binding revelation that we have is nil, so it doesn't really matter for us because there's no recorded words. We could say he was or isn't, but he doesn't impact the church right now. Yeah, good point. Matthias, is, whatever function he had, was only during that time because he didn't write anything. And some of the other apostles never wrote anything either. So the, the foundation we have is the one that was written. Okay, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. 
No, that was you? Sorry, Pastor. We get uh, Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20, okay. Okay. You've been right so far, though. You've got to be wrong once every Sunday. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Yeah, so he's talking about in the flesh, living by faith. Living by faith, not by sight. Hebrews 10:38. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Yeah, and that was also the same kind of um, issue in Hebrews 10:38. Shrinking back would be uh, in unbelief and failure to continue to believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ and in, in His blood as being sufficient. Hebrews 11:1. I've heard said that the opposite of faith is fear. When I think of people that shrink back, it's people that are in fear. Shrink back in fear. Um, Would you shrink back in fear? Yeah, I suppose one would be fearful if you don't believe your sins are covered. Um, the issue in Hebrews is more about unbelief. So I'd have to look at back at the context there. But in Paul, in the, whoever wrote Hebrews was addressing their desire to go back to the temple, right? And so I think that it's, it's almost, what did he call that? A trotting underfoot the blood of the covenant? If you can look at like about verse 35 in there, look in the context. 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have a need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Okay. So then, and then it says shrink back. Okay. Hebrews 11, 1 and 6. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So we need to believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And then, um, let me find 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, let's all turn to that one. One Peter one and verse eight. It's not the same thought. Let's let's start with verse seven. That the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. (coughs) Excuse me. And though you have not seen him. You love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory. Now notice it says you do not see him now, in the future we will, but believe in him. It doesn't say seeing is believing. It says believing and not seeing is what Christian life is. 
And this faith that we have in the resurrected Christ whom we cannot see is being tested. Proof there, that word proof would would have to do with uh, testing something to see if it's genuine. And so the, and notice in verse 9 as we read on, obtaining as the outcome of your faith a mansion on Lake Minnetonka. No, no, I didn't say that. No. That must be the new, new revised, revised version. No, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now, why are we having so much apostasy coming into the church? Is because masses of people no longer see the salvation of their souls as a worthy object. Or they think that the salvation of your souls is kind of a passe and boring topic, and they're more interested in solving problems now. Give me something that makes me feel better now at any cost. Even if it means I have to do what God has forbidden, I, I need something now so I feel better. And can't we say if our sins are forgiven, we can rejoice? Amen. 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 Um, when our son was diagnosed with leukemia, I was given a book, and after I finished reading it, the only thing I could come away with was, if I didn't have enough faith, he might not, if, or if he didn't survive, I was because we didn't have enough faith. So somebody gave you a book to try to help you? Yeah. No, well, how does that help? If you couldn't hear, her, their, their son had leukemia and somebody gave him a book that suggested that if the, if the son didn't make it, it was because of their lack of faith. That is not encouraging. But this, but this verse, I mean... It is encouraging. Is, is, if we have faith, that's the outcome. Not whether we live or die. Absolutely. And that's what our passage we're studying in 2 Corinthians 5. Whether we live or die, that's our next verse. We'll start on next week. It says... We are of good courage, verse 8. We are of good courage. And I say, prefer rather to be absent from the body to be home with the Lord. So the worst thing that happens is we go to be with Jesus. The outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls, not the solving of every problem that we have here that we don't care about, we don't want to have. And so uh, we should not ever depart from the thing that will give us joy uh, inexpressible joy. Okay? Yes, it does affect us in the here and now. It gives us inexpressible joy knowing we believe in him whom we see not and that he's coming. So uh, we can rejoice in that. This morning the sermon is going to be about the Passover, the tenth plague, and how God passed over and made a people into a nation from Exodus 12. Please help with the chairs. We'll have a time of fellowship.